happened. Now I want to get into the press. This is the Press Man Podcast. And I think it's one of the parts of the game now which is, is increasing, and that is pressing. We're talking about press man technique. Again, you won't find this information anywhere in the whole world. This is the Press Man Podcast. Press, 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 press. Everybody wants to play press man. And we're going to try to put everything together in this particular phase of teaching our press man-to-man coverage. What is a full-court press? So we're going to try and have a look at the boys and the press and how they do it. This is the Press Man Podcast. And you watch the games on Saturday and Sunday and they talk about the press, press, press. This is episode five of the Press Man Podcast with me, John Schreiner. I'm joined today by the now former head football coach at Westside High School, Brett Freund. Brett, thanks so much for coming. You bet, John. Thanks for having me. So you're familiar with the podcast. You know yeah. what, what I like to do here. Uh, it's the deeper biographical conversations, what makes you tick, uh, you know, how you came to be the things that you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the way I love to start it is just, you know, tell me where you grew up. How, what was childhood like? Uh, what were you into? Yeah, small town, Coleridge, Nebraska, up in northeast Nebraska. Graduating class of 17, so really small town, blue collar, uh, great family, um, a brother and a sister grew up with. Parents worked extremely hard. Uh, both my siblings worked very hard. So blue collar, hard work ethic, background, and, and that kind of set the tone my whole life to, to do what I do and to be who I am, really. Uh, my mom worked, they got divorced, uh, my parents got divorced when I was five, and Back then, no one got divorced. It was a big deal, but I was five, so I didn't know any different. But still had a great support of, you know, they both lived in town. I got to see them every day. And so really pretty normal for me, um, even though a divorce wasn't back then. So, But my, my mom worked two or three jobs, and my father worked very hard as an electrician. And um, we started working when we were really young on the farms, walking beans, at the gas stations, uh, whatever it might be. But so... That's where I grew up, and, and the town itself had a strong sports history in terms of, especially football. Um, Coleridge won their first football championship in 77, and I was in sixth grade and was a student manager for the team because my brother was a student manager. So okay. uh, that was kind of a fun start. And then, uh, of course, we had a lot of success in football and track and, and everything. So I played everything. Um, it was an opportunity to learn how to play tennis, golf, um, you know, football, baseball. We just did everything. So that's where I fell in love with sports and athletics and, and, uh, was very competitive at it as, as much as I could be. So, uh, graduated in 84, went to Lincoln, um, kind of went to Lincoln cause my brother went there and kind of followed his footsteps. And, um, at the time went into business and got my business degree, even though the whole time I, I wanted to coach and be in athletics, but at the, I was pretty immature and naive <laughs> at the time, just wanted to kind of follow his footsteps in the business world. And, uh, but I had a good experience in Lincoln and, and in a fraternity. And I, I think had I not been a part of fraternity, I, I would have went home. Uh, I was pretty immature and wasn't ready for college life academically. And first semester was pretty rough on me. I, I, I ended up with a decent GPA, but uh, I almost went home after three or four weeks because uh, my girlfriend was still back home, <laughs> <laughs> who is now my wife. That's so, how it always goes, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, but being a part of a frat and being part of that um, – that, that brotherhood really saved me. And that's the first experience I had with brotherhood. And, uh, and so ended up surviving and uh, left college in 88 to work at the principal financial group in Des Moines, Iowa as a uh, 
life and health underwriter, group health underwriter. Great company, great opportunities. Got to fly the corporate jet, you know, twice in the first <laughs> year, which is really cool. Uh, but it's not what I wanted to do. So came back to Omaha in 90. Uh, my wife was very, uh, Jackie was awesome in allowing me to come back, pursue teaching and coaching because that's what I really wanted to do. And it uh, took me three years back then to get my endorsement, where now it takes a year to get master's and endorsement. So yeah. that was a long three years of living in poverty and and uh, my wife support me. Um, but uh, in 93 then, a student taught at Bryan. And uh, in nine, fall of 93, I got a job at Westside. So that's where mm-hmm. I stayed for the last 29 years. So I think it's so interesting. Um, you know, I talk to people. A lot of the people I talk to are extremely successful people You know, on the podcast. You know, you've got a professional sports team owner that we've had so far the the ceo of teammates you have maybe the most well-known sports writer in the state of nebraska yes. you've got the head volleyball coach at and Creighton what are you University. doing with a west side football coach <laughs> well here's the common thread is that of all the people i've talked to the childhood story is a lot the same mom and dad yeah. worked very hard and you know it, it's not to say like you were the head football coach at Westside, but your record speaks for itself. You were very successful. You had you had a lot of success, and you came into that program at a time when it wasn't very successful. But I just find it so interesting that there's a thread there that these successful people, their parents may not have been like wildly successful, but they instilled in them through whether it was, you know, uh, intrinsically or or extrinsically this work ethic. And I, you highlight that as well. Mom was working two or three jobs. Mm-hmm. Dad's an electrician. There, there seems to be some common thread there with like the example that your parents set for you sets you up for some sort of success. Yeah. And humility is a big part of it too. You know, my, I don't think my father ever earned more than $20,000 a year, partly because small town electrician, but the other part was he did a lot of work for people that couldn't pay or just wanted to go help them. You know, and so we learned a lot from that too, and how to treat other people. And uh, so throughout my career, that's kept me quite humble. I'm not a headline guy. In fact, this is even hard to be out in public <laughs> doing this. Uh, I, I'm proud of it, but it does all go back to my heroes, and those are my parents and and my brother and sister. And my brother had quite a road to haul as well, and he's a he's a hero of mine. So uh, that's a lot of inspiration, and the reason why it's easy to get up in the morning and go to work. So when did football become the thing? Oh, just the passion when I was young, you know, the background, uh, the backyard games. Uh, I'd come up with them. I'd participate in them. It was rough. It was, you know, you don't see that much anymore. Kids playing in the backyard and tackling each other without (laughs) equipment on. And we would put Army equipment on and tackle each other. It didn't matter. But it just became, I was just highly competitive. I wanted to beat everybody. And uh, football was what my hometown was, was known for. And so I wanted to be a big part of that and got involved as a student manager, like I said, and uh, just love the sport, love the strategy. Um, when I went to Lincoln, the I dabbled a little bit in the PE department just because I loved coaching, and I took a, a coaching course, a uh, football coaching course from Lee Zentic, who's a certainly a, a legend down the Lincoln area, Lincoln East. Mm-hmm. I didn't know at the time, but uh, so I took that class and did a playbook, and he gave me 100% and a big smiley face and said one of the best books I've seen, and, and that made me really proud. In fact, we ran the wishbone in high school, so it was a wishbone playbook. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but, you know, I always, uh, it just always had a passion for it. And um, that year and a half that I went out in the business and, and went back to school, I just always knew that's exactly what I wanted to do because 
even in college, uh, the intramurals, I was a quarterback. I was coming up with the schemes, uh, planning the team, and it's just something I love to do. And, of course, it, it played out pretty well for me. So it, it seems like it was kind of always leading to, to coaching um, w- with your story. But how hard was it for you? You know, you get you get a job with a, a prominent company in the business world, and you said you're flying on the corporate jet. How difficult was it to make that decision to give that up? Only difficult to uh, ask my wife to, you know, change change our lives. Um, you know, she thought she was marrying an insurance exec, future insurance exec, and, and she at the time was a legal secretary. Um, but she's amazing, and that's why I've been married to her now for 33 years. Um, but she said, let's go, and we came back to Omaha, and that was the, the biggest change. It wasn't so much... The corporate atmosphere was was great and the company was great, but that's not what I really wanted to do and didn't have the passion for it. Um, so it was it was basically on her and, and what she allowed me to do. And she came back and again took a she took a job back in Omaha to support me. She also started night classes herself. So in eight years, she got her degree at night school, both through uh, having a full time job and having a kid. So she deserves all the credit for anything we've done in our family and what I've been able to do. So Westside High School, you were there yeah. for 29 years, mm-hmm. uh, and that was was that was your first teaching stop, was it not? It was, yeah. Um, I did a little bit of uh, observation and helping with DECA and things like that prior to that, and so I got exposure to it. Um, actually had an offer to go work at OPS in one of their middle schools uh, right off the bat as I, I was the interviewing process, and they had a my wife who worked uh, at a law firm at the time knew the super somebody in the law firm knew the superintendent and dropped my name. Uh, to Ken Bird, and uh, he basically got me in the interview process, and I asked OPS to put the offer on hold for a few days, and they were gracious enough to say, okay. And within a week, um, I was able to get an offer from from Westside, and I knew it was a great school, obviously, back in, I'd heard a lot about it. Uh, I knew the academics was awesome. Uh, athletics, didn't know too much about at the time, but I just knew it was a great school. Um, so it wasn't too hard to make that decision over a middle school. How'd you get into the, the coaching ranks at Westside? What was that process like? Yeah, so I entered with Bob Greco, and I came at the same same year. So uh, it's kind of started with baseball. Bob got the head baseball varsity job, and I got the JV job. And uh, growing up, I played lots of baseball. Didn't know a whole lot about coaching baseball at all. but And I also got a, Fred, uh, a freshman football position with Fred Hutchinson as the head coach. And he was kind of a legendary coach at Westside as well. Um, so I got the perfect perfect fit at the time and and learning under Bob and learning under Fred Hutchinson at the time was amazing experience because Fred as a freshman head coach for decades at Westside was also a, a big 12 official um, so I learned the game from him and learned how to coach the, the specifics and he knew how to coach every position every special team and uh, I took a lot from that in terms of micro coaching everything about a team and uh, that experience was awesome so those types of coaches don't get near as much you know credit as they should but and then I learned from Greco I think one of the first things even though I only coached baseball for six years before I got out and got the golf job um, what I learned from Bob year one was he came in and the, the baseball program was struggling pretty heavily at the time and Bob right away started talking about state championships and I, I was thinking what in the hell is he talking about? (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is our first couple days and we don't even know the kids in here. We're talking about, you know, being the highest level. And and I'm going, that guy's crazy. And, you know, within a few months, I realized the the direction we had to go 
and how he went about doing it. And it's just about confidence and it's about becoming confident in your, in your skill sets and things like that. So I learned a lot about, you know, raising the bar really high and then learning how to achieve it. So I learned a lot from Bob early on uh, about coaching. There seems to be a huge learning curve with coaching because you're, you have to teach kids how to play the game and understand all the nuances. And for someone like you who, who necessarily hasn't played it at the highest level, mm-hmm. you know, you, you didn't play college football. You didn't go through those, that grind of team meetings and, and learning all the intricate details. What was the learning curve like of, of being able to understand the game so that you could translate it to people who definitely don't understand the game? Yeah, uh, I go back to hard work, right? When I started at Westside, my dream wasn't to be a head football coach. It was just Mm. to coach. Um, And I learned everything I could from from Fred and from the staff. Larry Morrissey at the time was the head coach. Um, Marty Kaufman, that whole crew. It took me a few years to kind of gain their trust because I knew that was important. But I still didn't have sights on being a head football coach. It was just about being as, as good as I could be and making them proud. That's what was my... Just like I tried to make my parents proud, my brother proud, and sister proud, things like that. Um, that was important to me. And so, you know, visions of being a head coach didn't happen until uh, Marty, excuse me, Larry stepped down in in uh, 2002 that I thought, hey, this might be something. And so that's when Marty got the job. Um, and I knew, even though I put my name in the hat, they announced Marty, which they should have at the time. Uh, but it humbled me a little bit going, okay, I have more to learn. And uh so what I concentrated on was just being the best assistant I could be. Um, I didn't have visions of when's he going to be done so I can take over. It was just year after year, Marty put me in charge of the defense, which I was very, very thankful for, just being the best defensive coach I could, uh, help the younger guys come along. Because I, I started learning that the people around you are more important than you. And mm-hmm. so the people that were around me, of course, I didn't select. It was um, great coaches and great people learning from them. And whatever I could contribute to their success, I knew we'd be good um, because there's there's a lot of good people at Westside. So our defense became very strong during that time because um, I just concentrated on being the best assistant I could. And it wasn't about trying to establish that uh, that track or that road map to the head coaching position because I knew that would happen with time if I if that's what I wanted and, and that's what, um, you know, fate would have for me. And that, that sort of sets up an identity, I think, when you did become the head coach, um, which was 2009, your first year, that, that unselfishness that, and you guys developed a lot of awards and, and recognition about, you know, being an unselfish teammate. So, um, I, we can now see where all that, that Mm -hmm. stems from was that, you know, maybe not getting it the first time through. And then when it came around in 2009, seems like you had already formed an identity of how you wanted the the team to look. Yes, but the I think the smartest thing I did in 09 was I took my entire coaching staff to Mahoney State Park and asked them what they wanted the program to be like. I had already written down things that I wanted it to be, hmm. but I knew buy-in was important. I knew it wasn't a matter of me telling them what I, my vision was. It was a matter of what's our vision, so we spent – an afternoon, a night, and a morning uh, banging out a mission statement, which I, you hear that about that a lot, right? But this was like, fellas, this is how we're going to run our program on a daily basis. So what's it going to be? So 
we started with that the and when we got done with that process after a full day of at Mahoney State Park it looked exactly like I wrote down <laughs> partly because a lot of those people were still on the on the staff at the time those coaches I knew how they thought they knew how I thought but the point being is it was almost identical so but I had buy-in from day one um, and that was important for because it takes more than a head coach to run the program it takes a village and if you don't have that village consistent then I think your ups and downs are going to be greater. So it's just starting there as I think was my smartest move, getting buy-in from the coaches. They knew they had ownership in the program. They just weren't a piece of the program. And from there we started growing. And, of course, we went through growing pains, right, throughout the years. But um, establishing what we wanted to do on both sides of the ball, and that changed within the first two or three years, made some mistakes there. But um, we figured it out. So let's talk about 09. Yeah, <laughs> we're we're gonna we're gonna explore some of the dark times too. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a struggle, guys. We're we're one and eight, uh, and I did the math on this. The average score of your games was a thirty-six to seventeen loss, yeah. and and most of them weren't that close. Yeah. So I mean, what what was the the what was going through your mind in, in two thousand nine? I'll be completely honest. We thought we could win every game. Um. We had a very small senior class. Uh, very few of those guys had played the prior year. But they were great kids, uh, starting with Nick Aruza, um, Tevin Griffin. Those, those kids became unbelievable leaders. In fact, that first year, we named an award, a leadership award that I still give to this day, the Nick Aruza Leadership Award. He was amazing. Um, and the positivity and the excitement at that first year was, was awesome. The games sucked (laughs) but i i'll be honest uh and and maybe it was naive and maybe it was overconfidence but we thought the next week we had a chance (laughs) and the next week and the next week and the next week uh part of it was coaching too you know we didn't have things in place and we were running an offense that we probably shouldn't have been running at the time but we 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 thought we wanted to go a certain direction and we shouldn't we didn't we didn't coach to our strengths we coached to what we thought would work and so we that was a learning curve for us too but uh, we did not lose any momentum in terms of confidence and excitement at all uh, that first year. We knew uh, the tools we had to work with, but we didn't use that as an excuse. And we, we tried to max out those kids the best we could. Um, so coming out of that was a was more of a positive than it was a negative, to be honest with you. Um, and it was a downer. But you know, when you coach, if you coach on wins and losses, you're gonna have you're gonna go to extremes that I don't think you want to go to. Um, we just got, we started with the processes and we knew what we had were good. The kids enjoyed the experience, even though the, the record was terrible. Uh, we knew when we got done, we had a great banquet. The kids and the parents were in positive moods. And, and we knew at that point that the processes we put in place, the fun things we did on the side were, were important and that wasn't going to change. So that was part of the trajectory early on that we, that we saw. It. And that was my goal coming into 09 as well. And being a head coach is, um, and I've always taken pride in this is, the, the win-loss records were going to come, we felt, um, based on the talent and based on how well we, we gelled as a staff. But it was important for me, to, for the 85th kid on the team, to have a good experience through our program. And after that first year, we, we thought most of the kids had a good experience, regardless of how much they played. So we knew that some of the things we put in place, whether it was the awards, whether it was how we practiced, the, the fun things, activities we did outside of practices, uh, they seemed to enjoy. So we knew the processes were in place to, to at least get us started. And it's always interesting to hear coaches talk about that because sports in general, you are judged so heavily on results, like the record, 
and the titles and what, what you know what kind of hardware do you produce for the trophy case those those are the things that you're judged on from the outside and every coach you talk to you know at least any any that's had success they you don't focus really on on results it's all about process how how is it that you can stay focused on on those details when the whole world is telling you that your results aren't any good it just goes all back to the beginnings right just being humble and uh it was truly about the people you're working with every day and what you're working towards and the headlines weren't important to me and the, the media wasn't important to me um and maybe sometimes that was a negative for us in terms of how i responded and reacted to some of that but none of that was important. What what was important was how our players felt and how our parents felt about the trajectory of the program, um, the buy-in we got from them, and all parties involved, including administration, our school. And that's all I really cared about. As long as there was a positive movement forward in those areas, I was excited and and happy to lead, to be honest with you. And nothing outside just never bothered me, never fazed me at all. And as a result, I really didn't get a lot of that. You know, we didn't, I didn't feel that pressure too much because I think the outside from the alumni base to the past players, they kept giving us positive reviews, you know, in terms of how we were running things. Uh, hardly had ever had problems with parents because, you know, up until 2009, we never had parent meetings. And I thought that was an important thing for the parents to know mm -hmm. exactly how we we're going to treat their kids, what the program was going to do, and then make sure we followed through with that. And I attribute a lot of the lack of parent issues to the fact that we communicated with them. They knew exactly how their kids were going to be treated, how the program was going to be run, uh, and how to deal with any issues off the field. But uh, throughout my 13 years, I don't think I had more than five issues with, with parents. And I attributed a lot to, to that, the positivity, um, the trajectory of how we treated the kids. And we knew the wins would come with that, and with talent, obviously. Uh, and I guess I had faith in that. And if it didn't work out that way, well, then I was going to try to do it the right way. I'm just thinking about this and, and the way you're describing, you know, how you were running the program in the background, you know, having a retreat to, to set the, the process, you know, setting up, um, you know, little inside goals for, for the team to achieve with the awards and stuff, having meetings with parents and setting expectations and building those metrics it sounds like a business approach mm -hmm. and oh, maybe yeah. that makes sense having with you having gone to business school it sounds like you drew on a lot of that business experience to build a football program yeah i think that's part of it because that's that's how my mind works right um but a lot of it was being in the program from 93 to 09 taught me a lot Mm -hmm. And it taught me both what, what things were good and what things needed to be improved. Because when I took over from Marty, you know, we had a six-year run that was pretty fantastic. It was, it was really good. We, we won a lot of football games, high winning percent, a lot of playoff appearances, one state championship appearance. But there were things I felt could be improved. And that was from the standpoint of, of more, more involvement, uh, whether it be retreats with the kids, uh, more uh, OTGs, we call them, organized team gatherings. Um, parent meetings, I just felt there were pieces that could improve that might build the entire foundation to be stronger um, and to be more consistent, even though we were pretty consistent for six years. So it wasn't so much that our program was in bad shape because it wasn't. It was in really good shape. I just wanted to try to find ways to improve it. And so 
it was it was just about finding the pieces to do that. And I stole a lot of these ideas. I mean, how many coaches come up with original ideas, right? I know Walt Olson had some of the ideas that we stole from Papio South, the Toolbox Award, the Hammer Award, and I'd heard that in clinics. So thought, hey, that'd be cool. Brought it to the staff. They loved it, so we, we implemented. So it's just those little pieces that I found in other programs, too, that helped a lot. And uh, um, that's what I felt filled the holes. But then it's my organizational or, you know, I'm very disciplined in terms of how I want to do things, but – Yet, I'd always make sure I got buy-in from the staff because it can't be a one-man show to have a successful program. I, there are some out there. I mean, I know some coaches that, that do things, uh, and most of it falls upon them to, to accomplish it, and they've been successful. That's just not how I can operate. I need, I need a team uh, of coaches that, that have buy-in and ownership, and that's important to me. What was your darkest time as a coach? When, when were you at the lowest? Wow. Uh, <laughs> That's a tough question. I'd have to think about that a little bit because I can't. It doesn't pop pop out of my mind um, in terms of the lowest. I think the struggles of of balance between my football obligations and my teaching obligations and my golf obligations and my family obligations. Um, and I think that losing my father in nineteen was really difficult. Um, so it was, it was not so much on the field at all because I always felt um, with the team I had around me, both coaches and players, that was always my safe haven. Um, when I went to practice, first mod sports performance class was my best times of the day. So some of the dark times just came outside, you know, when I had to deal with family issues. Uh, and I didn't take the time to do that because I put, I put Westside and football at a high priority. And uh, th- that was it, um, just some of those times. But... Overall, you know, I wouldn't give any of it back. And, and, I, and I can't really point to any specific football dark times. Obviously, when you lose state championships, those are tough times. Uh, you can take a lot of gratitude in the fact that you made it because, you know, getting past that Final Four is, is a pretty yeah. big accomplishment. And I, I told the players that that's our goal, be in the Final Four every year, and, and that's, that sets your program apart. Uh, so when you get there and, and lose, uh, regardless of how big, those are probably the darkest times, but yet you take a lot of momentum off of that into the next season too. I guess that's why you, you stuck around for as long as you did because yeah. there weren't any dark times. Um, you know, you hear a lot of, of a lot of the people I talk to say, you know, yeah, that 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 season when we were, you know, as you were one and eight, it, mm-hmm. there were there were times when we we thought about maybe hanging it like this wasn't for me or but it doesn't seem like you were ever there. Never, not at all. Like I said, we were <laughs> incredibly naive to think that we can compete in, a, in against Miller North that year. Yeah. Uh, but I felt based on the game plan that we had a chance. I don't know why. Um, and again, not a naivety there, but um, that's how I approach things is never never ever did i approach a game that that we could not win regardless of the season and uh it was it wasn't overconfidence it was just planning and we thought we had a plan to to compete so that's how we approach things so football was was the sport that you were most known for coaching here in the metro but you also did coach baseball and golf which you've mentioned well what what's the difference in in coaching those three sports uh you know football is a lot of Planning, execution, organization, uh, and skill work, and physical. Golf's just the opposite. It's all psychology. Um, totally different kinds. And where the kids come from, their backgrounds and their upbringing is totally different, too. Because you can take a kid in football and teach them football from, from you know, football 101 to them. How to snap a ball, how to throw a ball, how to catch a ball. In golf, um, most of the kids are, have played the game for years. Whether it be in a structured environment 
um, with a lot of good coaching or just, just casual with grandpa. But the point is they feel they know how to play already. And so it's really about convincing them that there's better techniques and better better ways to go about it or psychologically how to approach the game because as you get older you get better in a game of golf because you you think better so how to advance that down to the high school level is a challenge every year <laughs> with with kids that are ultra talented to kids that are not talented at all and meshing only 13 of those kids together was a challenge every year which i really love plus it got me out of the weight room for two months and you know high school coach i i, I love the break out from away from the football team and let the assistants take you know, Craig Secor has been amazing. Justin Haberman, those guys have been with me since 09. And they kind of took the kids during that time and did some spring stuff. And I was dabbling in and out, but it was nice two and a half month break to uh, pursue another passion of mine, which is golf. And of course, coaching is, is the ultimate too. So it was a nice mix. What was your favorite part of coaching golf? Psychologically, how to find trust in each kid. Uh, each I had to find a way to earn each kid's trust so they would buy into any psychological changes that we might want to, or mental changes we might want to make. Um, I was pretty competent in teaching the short game. So from a technical standpoint, I could teach that well if a kid had a, uh, a limitation there, but it's really about getting trust with them. So they would listen uh, because they've got coaches, they've got <laughs> fathers, grandfathers who think they know the game. And that was always a barrier that you had to fight through. In football, it wasn't the case. In football, you know, most parents release the kids to you once they're done with youth football, right? Uh, and, and you get to work with that product and, and develop to the max. But in golf, it was more in the head. And it's it's hard to change a teenager's head sometimes <laughs> <laughs> yes. mentally. So that, that was a challenge, but that was the fun part too. Awesome. I want to get back to football a little bit. One of the things that you and I have talked about over the years uh, when we've done coach interviews before games and such is, and it's always been fascinating to me, and I, I know I've asked you about it before, but most people probably haven't heard it. The way you developed the offense when you guys were having so much success, it was a reverse-engineered offense with you as a defensive coach. Does, can you Can you speak to how you came up with your, your offensive concepts um, during those later years when you guys were having so much success? It was truly about just changing to our talent, right? Um, you know, do you have a run-based quarterback or do you not? Um, and it, Craig Sikora, who's our offensive coordinator, was wonderful to collaborate with because we'd bounce things back and forth. I, I, I of course, would always tell him, Here, here's what I'm seeing, here's what we need to do, change. Uh, and he'd do a great job adapting to that. And he'd tell me consistently, too, here's where I see a weakness in your pass defense. So I know all coaches do that to some degree, but we it was seamless in our approach. And, and you know, I'm, I'm a guy who – defensive guy, knowing if you have 11 guys to defend on offense, it's tough. If mm -hmm. you have 10, it's a lot easier. So I was always – of course, in, in high school, we get the talent we get. You know, so if you don't have a running quarterback, then teams only have to defend 10 for the most part. If they have a running quarterback, then it's 11 and makes things a lot more complicated. So I was always one, if we could get the quarterback run game involved, let's do it. And there were years we could and years we couldn't. So as that changed throughout time, um, we had to adapt a little bit with our offenses. And uh, Craig did a wonderful job of that and the rest of the staff. Um, but year by year, that was a challenge. Of course, when you get a Cole Payton that comes through. <laughs> and, and Cole was the first three-year starter we had. Yeah. We always had two-year starters or a year, year starter. So – it was nice to know when Cole was a sophomore what we had and what we were going to be able to do for the next two and a half years, which was nice. Um, 
the quarterback before that wasn't quite so mobile. So we had more of a pass set game and, and power run game. So it was all about adapting to the, to the talent and um, changing our system to adapt to that talent. Offensively, it's easier to do. Defensively, it's a little tougher to do. Um, because you hate changing from a 3-4 to a 4-3 to a 3-5, whatever you're going to do. And we did a little bit of that early in my career, and that was a mistake. Um, but offensively, it's easier. Yeah, I've just always loved the conversations when when talking to you about, you know, well, we do the things on offense that we find hard to stop. So mm-hmm. that, that was always a, an interesting way, I thought, to look at an offensive philosophy. Sure, and adapting that to your, you know, do you have speed on the perimeter? Do you not? You know, what, what do you got up front? And sometimes we had to cover cover up what we had up front. Where Westside's not known for having big linemen and mm-hmm. and a lot of high-level, you know, linemen go to college and things like that. So, you know, we had to make the defense think a little bit more and react a little bit more versus uh, try to run at people. So, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a wishbone guy from at heart, so yeah. I would have loved to run downhill uh, my whole career, but we just couldn't do that based on the personnel we had. Well, it wouldn't be a discussion of Westside football unless we talked about the rivalry with Creighton Prep. Yeah. And I just wanted to get your sense of, of your experience over the years uh, inside that, that rivalry between Westside and Prep. Yeah, when I first came to Westside and, and started learning about it, of course, I'm not from Omaha, right? So it didn't – and we had some rivalries back in high school, so I understood the hate-love-hate mm-hmm. relationship or hate-hate relationship. <laughs> and I got a lot of that when I, early on in the 90s, uh, you know, because in the 80s it was nasty. Yes. It was, it was nasty. Same with Burke and It's Westside. toned down quite a bit. It has know? because the kids are friends. You know, they've, right. they've, they've come up through youth baseball – whatever football together. And so it's a little less, but it's, it's still there because especially the parents that were West side alums and have kids at West side, that's where it comes from a lot. And that's good. It keeps it alive. And over the years, you know, I have tremendous respect for Creighton prep, but there's no question those, those weeks come around and the, the discussions, the, the lectures, the pep talks become a little bit different uh, because your alumni, I, I receive more feedback, more text, uh, after prep wins than I do uh, a playoff win. Uh, I think the state championship might have been the best, but in the end, if we beat prep that year, that's huge for our alumni base, and, and they, they love it. So, that's a good season, beat <laughs> prep. A, yeah, people tell me that, yes. Yes. Uh, obviously not being uh, an orig- you know, an OG, uh, yeah. it's, it's a little less than, you know, hey, prep's one game, but on the other hand, it's, it's a fun one to get ready for. So you went to three state championship games, four straight championships, State, yeah, four state championships, three straight yeah. from nineteen to twenty-one. What was uh, what was that run? What 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 led up to it? What do you think the the conditions were for your program that allowed you to to have that kind of success? Well, our first one was in thirteen, and one of the things I look back on and know that helped us was consistency with staff. Because hmm. so from 09 to thirteen, my staff was pretty much the same. And uh, then I lost uh, some really good coaches, Sean Blevins, uh, Chad Schmeckpepper, Rick McKeever retired um, and after that 13. So it took a, a couple of years, again, to get consistency in staff. And, you know, I go back to the Osborne years, right? He said something that was so important to him and their success. And as I reflect back, even after 13 and 15 and 16, I, that was something that was definitely a factor. So the longer you can keep staff together, there's no question. It's, it's a huge benefit. Of course, talent ebbs and flows, right? Yep. But the game changer was, uh, to be honest with you, in 15 and 16, um, I was always looking to learn new things, uh, whether it be new tackling techniques and bring them to the staff, 
I joined USA Football just to be a master trainer and learn some different things in the network and brought that back to the staff. And so we became a little more systematic in how we did some things, and I was able to get the coaches to buy into those processes. So we all had the common language that you want in the football staff. But really what changed was I allowed some outside experts to come in. Okay. Uh, we changed DJ Rezac, who's an alumni at Westside, um, has three kids playing at Westside. One just graduated. Um, he brought our new culture to us. Uh, we had a great culture and a strong one, but he allowed us, he came in and I allowed him to come in because he'd been working with our basketball team, Steve Clark's highly mm-hmm. successful basketball, girls basketball program. And I, I didn't resist, for, but for a couple of years, I just kind of sat on the sidelines and tried to figure it out. But I allowed him to come in and help us change and move our culture ahead to where, you know, uh, what you do on a daily basis matters and how, you, how kids are treated, what they expect, how they respond to, to negativity or the events that happen to them in their lives or on the football field or whatnot. And that really changed our trajectory of how kids acted around in our program, around our school. Uh, so it just even though our culture was good, it, it made it a lot stronger. And the kids became involved in that process. That same time, uh, I, I learned about Jack Riggins, who was working. He's a Navy SEAL. Uh, and he was working with Jeff Jamrog up at Midland. Uh, and he was bringing some special things to them about what it's, what it's like to be an elite person, elite mindset. And from Jack Riggins, um, who was partnering with Doc Widman, Doc Larry Widman, who I know you've talked about with your earlier podcast, yep. Coach Booth, but Doc's a, a former Westsider. And I, for the first time, went outside the program and brought these 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 experts in that knew a lot more than me about the mental side of football or the mental side of, of, of sports or, or being a person. Uh, and they changed everything. They changed how I thought. They changed how we teach um, elite mindsets and what it's like to be a performer at an elite level. So these people have either been, Jack Riggins has been an elite warrior in our country. Doc Wig, uh, Widman has studied elite athletes his entire career. And so we learn what it takes not just to be an athlete and a good athlete, but mentally what it takes to have an elite mindset. And when I allowed them to come in and work with our team, in fact, Jack Riggins did a boot camp one morning. Uh, we were hoping to go off-site and do a Remember the Titans type okay. boot camp, but it didn't work out. We did it at Westside, and it was transformational uh, in terms of learning how to push the kids to new heights and new levels that we didn't do before, more than just sprinting and doing conditioning drills and things like that. It was a totally different way of teaching kids how to get the most out of them physically, and Doc Widman taught us how to do it mentally, and that was a game-changer. So... The first time they came in, I said, guys, this isn't a one-time speech. This is something the coaching staff is going to carry on. I'm going to have you continually involved. And for the last five years, I did that. Uh, and Doc Widman's been with us. Um, in that same year, I hired Coach, uh, Coach Moravec, who is a sports psychologist by training. In fact, he was uh, on the staff of Remember the Titans prior to the movie being made. Oh, wow. Uh, he's worked in the CIA, the Secret Service, in private contracting for 20 years with Lockheed Martin. And he's, he's been with me on staff since 2016, which has allowed me to continually, daily work the, the mindset of kids and learn myself, number one, but bring that to our football program. And with the talent we had, you know, in the program, especially in, you know, the last 18, 19, 2021, uh, the training that we do on the mental side has been transformational. It's been a difference maker. Um, just to max out the kids, you know, 
max out the kid's ability, both physically and mentally, has been a journey that I wish I could have undertaken earlier, both personally, professionally, and, and for the kids. But that was without question um, something that took us to new heights. What did that do for you, exploring the, you know, the mentality aspect of things? Because it seems like you, you've kind of always been a person who was was very disciplined and had a clear idea of, of the way you wanted things. But was there any benefit for you as a coach to explore in those things? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I was reactionary like most coaches. Something bad would happen, you, you know, you'd react quickly to it and not always positively, but... When DJ started with us and taught us the model of, you know, E plus R equals O, right? You you can't control all the events in your life, but you re, you do control your response. And based on that, you get the outcomes you want. So it immediately changed how I even ran my life. When things happened at home poorly or when things happened in school, um, I couldn't control them all. So I tried to learn how to control my reactions. And that's when I kind of changed as a coach a little bit as well. I wasn't so reactive to things, not so negative to things. Uh, I just tried to keep everything as positive as I could. I, other coaches taught me how to, to work with kids in a different way and, uh, because kids were changing a little bit as well in terms of how hard you coach them. And to be honest, if you don't change as a coach, it's tough to remain as a coach, to be honest with you, because kids are, are different now and just in terms of what they expect from coaches and how they respond to your coaching. So that change started changing how I felt and how I dealt with things. And as I learned from all of these these resources, including Coach Moravec on a daily basis, um, it was more about how to motivate the kids to be at their best, not how to react to what was happening all the time. Uh, like Coach Osborne, his one of the things that he said has stuck with me now for about the last five or six years after I heard it, and he said it a long time ago. If, you know, catch someone doing something great and reinforce it. When you catch somebody doing something poorly, you know you don't react to it. So I started doing that and I became a better coach. That's great. And I think it's so valuable what you, what you said in there that you have to change as a coach because the kids are changing. I mean, you hear so often, oh, you can't coach these kids anymore. You can't tell them anything. <laughs> you, they don't want to learn. They don't want to work hard. But it seems like such a cop-out to me because it, it would be the same as saying, oh, we, we, well, we can't run the wishbone anymore. Like. We can't run this anymore. The game, you know, nobody nobody wants to, to play hard-nosed football anymore. We can't run the wishbone. But if the game has changed, you must change with it. And and it's it's it seems to me that it's the exact same with the attitudes of of the players that you're going to have to work with, that there has to be an adaptation. It's a realization that kids are brought up differently now and how you coach them needs to be different. But that's okay. And it is how it is, right? Um, how they're still competitive. They still want discipline. They still want to win. They still want to win the right ways. They still need leadership. All that's the same as when I was in high school. Nothing's changed. Um, how you come at them is is different, and and that's okay too. It's just an adaptation. Um, and that's you know I know coaches even in the metro who you know don't coach anymore. Um, we call them the old school coaches, right? <laughs> yeah. And they're still old school in me, and I and that's that's the kind of thing I'll keep, you know, disciplined, make sure I'm on task, on time, all those things that my parents taught me. Uh, but how you interact with people, I guess I've evolved, and that gets more out of people than the old school. Um, I'm convinced of that, and I've, I think that's I've had a staff around me that's, that's that believes the same thing. 
So it wasn't like I was one way and I had to bring the staff along. It's just I had guys around me that did the same thing, and we evolved together. And that's why I think the performance at our school, even at all levels and all all um, programs, because other coaches have started grasping on to what we've done and what uh, Steve did in the basketball program, and they're trying to introduce those same elements. And, and uh, it's a beautiful thing. Such great insight. All right, so it's the end now. You decided to hang it up after playing in the state title game. How long did it take you to make that decision that, that you were done uh, with coaching? From the teaching side, uh, you know, for the last year or two, I've been thinking about it pretty hard. Um, I guess people can play, uh, blame COVID and those kinds of things, but I don't know if that affected me that much. It was just, I'm not sure how it motivated me. I work hard in the classroom, and it was important for me to be a good teacher. Um but in the classroom, it became tougher for me to become motivated and energized. Um, the off seasons are grueling. I've been uh, since I got to Westside in '93. There wasn't, you know, it was a three-month sport, three and a half-month sport. We didn't do much in the off season. And I started the off-season programs, you know, '94, '95, where I was there all summer long, and both both baseball. So I guess going back to that, that's been a grind for a long time. And I guess there were things in our program that I knew needed to be better um, and take more time. And um, I wasn't sure I could give it anymore. So from a classroom standpoint, the last couple of years, I kind of was looking at this time thinking, okay, this is when I can go. Um, from the football standpoint, with all this success and everybody, you know, keeps, keeps saying, oh, you got this great class coming up and you got, well, there's always going to be great classes and kids coming yeah. up. Always. Um, Especially when you have a run of success. Yes. It's yes. just going to keep building. Well, and I've heard that from a lot of people. And, but I didn't look at that. I had to look at how I felt. And could I go into this summer and, and, and the fall and the off season with, with more energy than I've had before? Because there were areas I knew could be improved. Um, but if I can't give that energy to get it done, then I shouldn't be there. And so that collectively, I made the decision not to. Um, but I also felt really good about the fact that it's in a great place because the last thing I would want to do is leave the program in a poor place or even a mediocre place. And I felt if I stayed, um, that might be the case on my performance. Now, I'm always going to work hard. I'm always going to be ready. But could I give it everything that I should give it and I have given it? And if that answer is no, then that's not right for the kids and that's not right for Westside. So leaving it in a good place, leaving the golf program in a great place makes me feel really good about my decision, as hard as it is, because – I was down there today. I, I don't leave that place. Um, but it was time because it's time for new energy and it's time for uh, to make sure the program keeps at the level it is. And I'm pretty sure that's going to be the case with the people they have there and the kids they have there. But, you know, you, you say that it, it's it's not it would, wouldn't be the right thing to do for the program and for the school and for the kids. But honestly, it wouldn't be the right thing to do for you either. I mean, your memories uh, and your experiences would probably be soured if you in some way knew that you weren't giving as much as you thought needed to be given as well. Yeah. You know, like not winning the state championship uh, was tough because it's like, but it, Doc Widman reminded me this morning when I saw him, it's like, you know, when you put your, your programs in the place to succeed, um, that's the ultimate goal. It doesn't always happen. Right. Um, the ball is not round. <laughs> and if you put them, if you put your team and your program in place to succeed, that's that's your role as a head coach and as a leader, and that that makes me very satisfied. 
uh, again, it doesn't come, it doesn't come down to the outcomes, to be honest with you. It, it, it was the process. And I know that's a cliche, but it really was. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the process of getting there is so hard and so long and so tough, um, that I enjoyed for so long, but I wasn't sure if I could keep giving it at that level. And, uh, um, losing the game hurt and stung and still do does and always will because I'm a, I'm a pretty high competitor, but in the end, um, I love the fact that I'm leaving it, it in a good place with great people. So what's next? What are, what are you going to do now? <laughs> I don't know. Find a way to get paid. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good start. Well, you know, uh, I'm fortunate that I don't have to try to earn a living, uh, you know, outside of, of retirement. But um, I'm going to probably jump in the real estate game. I got a buddy who's a longtime coach uh, and realtor that wants me to partner up. So I'll probably jump in the real estate game a little bit and, and see what else is out there. But I'm not in a hurry. Uh, I, my yeah. wife and I took a trip to Italy two years ago. Um, I think we were gone eight days and that was the first time in 28 years that I'd been away, away from Westside for eight straight days. Okay. So, uh, it's feeling really good, even though I've been down there a lot because I, <laughs> I love the place and I'm still connecting and, and, uh, helping out as much as I can with the transition. Um, it's, it's fun just having my own schedule and doing things like this. Well, I think you should think about doing more things like this because yeah. it's been a fascinating conversation and so well-spoken and, and such great ideas. It's It's been awesome. Thanks, John. I appreciate you. All right. You're not done yet. Okay. We got the last little segment here, the thing I like to do, I'm calling it headliners. We're going to get three headlines from the news, mm. um, you know, just in the recent days here. And maybe it sparks a, a conversation. Maybe you've got an opinion or two. And uh, we're going to start with something that you're passionate about we're going to go to the golf world oh yeah uh news from cnn four-time major champion brooks kepka to join the live golf series where do you come down on live versus pga yeah it's not fun uh well it's a bummer because i i love all the personalities that are on the pga right the good the bad <laughs> yep. the ornery the the successful the fighters and and now it's being separated. That's what's bumming me out. But you know what? How how can you, if someone came to me today and said, I'll give you $100,000 to do this, it's pretty tough to say no. Not to mention $125 million. Exactly. So it's really difficult for me to, I don't, I try not to judge people too much because we don't know their circumstances or situation. From a fan's perspective, I wish it wouldn't have happened, but I'm happy for them because it looks like already the PGA is making changes. Uh, they came out, I think, this morning with, with more, I guess, more tournaments, but higher paydays. So it's already affecting what those guys get on the tour, which they deserve. Um, unfortunately, I'd rather, in, in the future, I want to go to some PGA events, which mm-hmm. I've only been to one. I've been to the Masters for okay. half a day, and it was the most beautiful experience of my life, to be honest with you. Um, well, outside my kids being born, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but it was, it was literally heaven on earth. Um, and I want to go to some PGA events, and I'd like to see all those guys in one spot. But that's a selfish thing. Um, so in the end, I think it's going to be good for the players uh, in general, but not so great for the fans. So do professional athletes have any political responsibility? That's that's the big question that this split is posing. Uh, boy, that's a tough one, right? Um, do they have political responsibility? I don't. I don't think that is a high priority on their list. No, or it should it be anybody's because again, they're being judged on what Saudi Arabia has right has done in the human rights area. But look at the products we buy, right? So when, when athletes are put in those situations, it's very hypocritical because society nations, um, other groups are not put on the same in the same spotlight and should be. 
So I think it's unfair to highlight those individuals making those decisions, to be honest with you. Um, anybody here in America who's traveled to certain countries on vacation, should we judge them? Because they went to a country that is, has poor human rights or poor history. So, no, I don't believe they have. Uh, I think they have, you know, certain uh, ethical and moral standards, I guess, um, because they're in the spotlight. But when it comes to polit- politics, I, I don't think so. Well said. All right, this one comes to us from KETV. And there's a reason I want to I want to discuss this. Ralston High School football coach arrested for DUI. So, I don't want to talk about the case. I don't want to talk about, you know, the person involved. I don't I don't want to get into any of the personal stuff. But I think the question it brings up is the difficulty of being a coach when you're asking kids keep your nose clean stay out of trouble make good decisions and look everybody's going to make mistakes but when something like this happens it, it sort of it must erode some of that right it can um but when i'm in front of my kids i tell them about my shortcomings all the time you know i've told them before i've drank a little bit too much and drove and i shouldn't do that most of them have parents that make mistakes all the time. We, we do not, I do not set myself up to be um, the pinnacle of all moral and ethical, you know, yeah. uh, trophies. Um, so I, I tell them that I'm, I'm a faulty person. And I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to do the best I can to correct them, you know, and it's going to happen. So I think in this case, it's the same thing because uh, I know the individual, an amazing man, amazing coach. Um, and he made a mistake, so I think he's going to do everything he can to correct that with his with his the people that he's around, both his family and his program. Um, I don't, I, you know, to see it in the in the news is is a little stunning to me, but I get it because we are public figures. Um, we're not paid like public figures, but yeah. We're, <laughs> yeah. And that's the sad part. If a math teacher from Ralston or from Westside, you know, gets DUI, you're not going to see that in the in the papers and things like that. Yeah, but it's somewhere on the back page if it is. Oh, uh, exactly. So, um, yeah, we are held to higher standards, uh, but we're we're humans and we make mistakes. And and how you recover from that is, is important. And hopefully, uh, you know, they work with him to to make him a better person and, and allow him to do what he does because he's a great person. Yeah, it, it's interesting how, you know, once you achieve basically any level of notoriety. There is a standard that that almost instantly raises, regardless of circumstance. And correct, and that's and I'm not sure some embrace that and some don't, right? Yeah, uh, and that's okay, as long as people don't judge because of you think your people should be perfect. Everybody's got faults. Everybody makes mistakes. Uh, we we as figureheads, especially coaches, give a ton of forgiveness to kids all the time. Right. Yep. Because mistakes are made every day. Bad decisions. We help them get out of trouble. We support them when they're in trouble. Look at how much Coach Osborne, you know, how much flack he took over Lawrence Phillips, which is just one of the hundreds of things that he had to do in Lincoln. Uh, but, you know, behind the scenes that that you're doing everything you can to support that person. And when when you make a mistake, um, you hope you have that same support and forgiveness. And like, like in this case, because again, we're, we're humans regardless of how, what level a pedestal we'll put on and we're going to make mistakes. And I know he's going to do a great job recovering from that. All right. Last one here. This one comes to us from ESPN. 
USC Trojans QB recruit Malachi Nelson and the new NIL world for prep students. And the highlights here are Malachi Nelson's expected to get $1 million plus in endorsement deals by the time he enrolls at USC. And there's a quote in here that, that I, I think is important too. Remember, this kid hasn't played his senior year of high school football yet, right? Mm-hmm. Here's his quote in the story. At the end of the day, we're chasing the NFL and the second contract when you really get paid. All of this is lining up to get to that point. Cart before the horse? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I don't think there's much correlation there at all because he won't get the next level without being a great player. It's not about how much money he makes. So uh, that seems like a naive comment, to be honest with you. Uh, but the NIL world is changing college sports, college landscape. You know that. Well, it's changing high school sports. 100%. Uh, every Well, you know, again, that's pretty – again, everybody likes to look at that story and try to apply it it's universally. It's the elite of the elite. Absolutely. But kids like to try to apply themselves as being an elite at that elite level. So it generates conversation which I haven't seen yet at the high school level, but every college coach I talk to uh, is baffled by it, is knows it's there, they accept it, but they don't know what it's going to do to them. And it, it makes their job a lot tougher, there's no question. Um, but it's sad to see that at the high school level, if that filters down to the point where where kids are thinking that's going to change their trajectory to that level is, is naive, I believe. And uh, he's got to go be a great player to get to the next level. It's, he can, and God bless him for making all the money he can and his parents. That's fantastic. Yep. And I don't ill wish anybody on that because again, you you need to do what you got to do. But to correlate the two, uh, to get a lot of money out of high school to be a pro athlete is is almost foolish. So he'll learn that, and he'll either earn earn his right to get the NFL or make make good money for a couple of years and and find another job. I just thought it was fascinating that a junior in high school is thinking about his second contract. I in had the NFL. not heard that story, but it's you know when I was in high school, I fan, you know fantasized about being somebody that I wasn't. I, I wrote oh, yeah. a letter to to uh, Coach Osborne at the time because I thought I was a good kicker and got 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 a note back from Peterson at the time who was the the recruiting coordinator. Oh, let's send us some film. We didn't have film, <laughs> but I you know I was a. a, a 11 man average kicker thinking I could kick for Lincoln and that's how teenagers think you know yep. uh, and and that's okay but uh the fact that they're quoting him on that and and that's national news is kind of interesting in itself it's a, it's a wild landscape <laughs> it is. that no, we're heading no into doubt. no doubt Brett thank you so much for coming in today this was this was just an enlightening and and really fun conversation with you and certainly wish you all the best uh as you head into a new adventure after coaching thanks john i appreciate you very much all right that does it for episode five of the press man podcast if you want to get in touch with me you can email me at the press man podcast at gmail.com follow me on twitter at john schreiner we'll be back in a couple of weeks with episode six